There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Well, here we are again this week in the second part of our twilight zone. Uh, we said last week, uh, twilight zone is that, uh, that place where you're challenged to question the interpretation of what you believe to be real. Uh, we noted even in part this whole COVID time where all of a sudden we're walking around wearing masks like we've never worn before and even wondering when is that going to end? And I suspect we probably all know people that even when it ends, we probably wouldn't hurt them to continue to wear their masks. But even things like going to the bank. I mean, I can't remember the last time I went to a bank. Or just going to a restaurant and sitting down and enjoying company and fellowship with others um, in just an kind of easy way. And now that's all gone. Um, it's all very strange, but we've seen strange things before. We've seen airliners crash into buildings. We've seen school shootings that now seem almost like every day. We've seen um, elections presidential elections go on for weeks wondering when the heck are we going to come up with a president we've seen strange things but the real uh, twilight zone experiences i think are those experiences that challenge the interpretations of life that are based on the core things that we believe the fundamentals of our worldviews that when they get shaken we become disorientated and even lost and I can't think of anything more fundamental in an interpretation of life than our interpretation of God because when our interpretation of God becomes a weak interpretation. When our interpretation of him becomes small, it will become very, very easy for us to become disorientated. It will be very, very easy for us to become lost. To all of a sudden have events uh, challenge us in our interpretations and to find ourselves speechless. One of those key interpretations of reality when it comes to God is what happens when God doesn't make sense to us. When our interpretations of reality concerning God become weak. When they become small. When they're built on truths that are just so elementary that we 
never take those truths to their deepest and most significant forms. It's during those times that we can find ourselves crashing uh, in our lives because we think we know who God is. We think we have a handle on him because we've experienced or we have seen in the scriptures this kind of basic view. You know, if you do good things, good things will happen. If, if you go to church on Sundays, if you pray, if you eat your vegetables, if you're nice to a little old lady who's helping them across the street, if you brush your teeth, if you do what is considered honorable, then you've checked out the boxes and, and God will do his part. God will come through for us because God's predictable. God is not a God of chaos. And so if I do this, God will do that. But what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when our view of God and his place in our lives and in this world suddenly gets turned upside down for us? When we look and we, we think to ourselves, what is God thinking? Because we know the answers. When people are sick, God should heal them. Um, when people are bad, we know God should punish them. When uh, people have diseases, we know that God should cure them. When we mess up, we know that God should fix it. When... Um, we want something, well, we know God should get it. I mean, it's pretty basic. This happens and this is what God should do. But when God doesn't do that, our worlds get turned upside down. It just seems so easy to us. Well, this morning we're going to look at what happens when God doesn't make sense, when we don't understand him. And we're going to do so by turning our attention to John's gospel. Because in his gospel, and particularly in chapter 5, we get a closer understanding of how to live when God doesn't make sense to us. Of what is going on in the midst of God not making sense to us. And so I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles and we'll have the verses on the screen. Um, we're going to look at John chapter 5 beginning at verse 1. Uh, look what we read. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, uh, we just are told that sometimes, t- sometime later that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus ha- had just come from Galilee. He had come from Samaria. Um, We had seen Jesus at the wedding of Cana and then after that we see Jesus with the woman at the well and now he's heading up to Jerusalem uh, to attend one of the Jewish festivals which just seems what Jesus should do because it's what every good Jew should do and Jesus being God and Jesus being the son of God of the Old Testament, well, of course Jesus would do this. 
Of course he would attend every festival. Why is that? Well, the reality is because what we see with Jesus in his life as he lived it, that he lived his life to live out his faith and fellowship with God and his faith and fellowship with one another. Jesus, as we saw at the wedding of Cana, was a person who loved to celebrate. He loved to celebrate God and he loved to celebrate others. It's been good that we've been able to come together and worship um, in, in this uh, genre of being together. But let's face it, while worship online is something we're grateful for, it's not the same thing. You can't replace being in fellowship with one another, coming together and worshiping together. I can't, I can't tell you how excited I was when I heard the governor say that churches could now meet. Um, it's been too long, and I can tell you, I, I have missed you people dearly. And I know that, that you've missed us as the staff, and you've missed one another, because fellowship is important. You can't grow in your faith if you don't grow in your fellowship. And it's interesting that when you look at Jesus' life, he spent his time doing the right things. And what were the right things? They were the things that brought him closer to God and closer to others. Something for us to consider. How are we living our lives? Are we living them in a way that strategically we're trying to avoid the junk of this life? We're trying to avoid the things that have no meaning or no value. The things that don't pour life into us and don't pour life into others. The things that don't bring us closer to the heart of God. Because that's the life that Jesus lived. Well, we're told that Jesus went up to Jerusalem uh, to attend a festival. Verse 2 we read, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five uh, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who, who was there had been an in invalid for 38 years. Now, I, I just want you to stop and think about this for a minute. Uh, Jesus is on his way, and he's uh, kind of at the place of the remnant of uh, the temple, and there are these pools within the temple. There are two of them uh, within this area near the Sheep Gate, and they're surrounded by these high pillars. And there are these people there. They're not the average people. These people are blind. They're lame. They're paralyzed. And they're hanging around this pool. Day after day after day. As we see there's one man who's been hanging around this pool for 38 years. Now why would you do that? Well, there was this legend that went around that every once in a while an angel would come and he would stir or trouble the waters and when he did 
whoever got in there first would be healed of their diseases. And so you see these poor and pathetic people hanging around this pool. Some of them have been there for many, many years. And we see this one particular man who's been there for 38 years. Can you imagine what it would be like waiting on God for 38 years? Um, no family, no friends. The only people around him are people who are blind and people who are lame and people who are paralyzed. And let's be honest, even though they're people like him, that doesn't mean they like him. That doesn't mean they like each other. In fact, the reality is they're all competitors. They're all there sick, wanting, we believe, to be cured, wanting to be healed, wanting to be healthy waiting for their chance to dash into that water. And so we have one man who's 30, been there 38 years. We don't really know how old that makes him. But we know that there's no family waiting on him. There's no one helping him. For some reason, there's nobody there for him. We read in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, I don't mean to say it like this, but that sounds like such a dumb question. I mean, the guy's been there 38 years. Why wouldn't he want to get well? I mean, why would you ask that question? I can't imagine going to the hospital bed of some parishioner who's struggling and who's very, very sick and look at them and say, hey, let me ask you, do you want to get well or are you comfortable? You're enjoying this? I mean, that would be a cruel thing to say. Why would Jesus say something like that? It doesn't make sense. I can't think of any reason to ask that question. It, it feels like a, a cruel question to me, quite frankly. Um, you know, if you're not going to help him, why don't you just walk on? But don't ask questions like that. In fact, uh, look at how the man replies. He says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down. So he responds to Jesus by saying, look, don't judge me. Um, I have a reason. You know, I, I, it isn't like I've been laying around here because I'm not motivated or because I'm just entitled. Um, the reason I'm not well is because I haven't been able to get in the water. I wonder what it must have felt like to feel like he has to justify himself. I just find it interesting that he does justify himself. 
And I would have to say, looking at it the way an average person looks at it, this wasn't one of Jesus' finest moments to be asking questions like that of such a, a poor, poor man. And finally, G Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And we read in verse 9, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. Well, okay, so we'll give it to Jesus. He wasn't being insensitive. Maybe that was part of the formula. Maybe that was part of the the ritual for getting this man healed um, to make sure he wanted to. Uh, the end result is uh, the man got up, he took up his mat, and he walked. In fact, when Jesus says to him, take up your mat and walk, it, he doesn't mean just get up and walk. He means kind of get up and walk around, you know, pick up that mat and walk around a few times, you know, stretch out your legs, whatever. But he wants him to move, do more than just pick up his mat and leave. He says, pick it up and walk around. Um, and so he gets up, he picks up his mat, and he's cured. Look what else we read. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So uh, let's just go back a little bit and, and think this through. Um, it's the Sabbath. Jesus heals him on the Sabbath day. Well, that, that, that sounds like a God thing. I mean, that makes sense. Um, it's a Sabbath. Sabbath is made for man. Jesus heals him. Why are the religious people in such an uproar? Um, why are these uh, spiritual policemen running and screaming violation? Didn't they care? Didn't they have any compassion? Didn't they know that it makes sense for God to show compassion and mercy? Well, what they saw was a real violation of the law. That didn't make sense. Because on the Sabbath day, you rest. On the seventh day, God rested. He rested from his work. And so God has called us to rest from our work. And what, is, what does this man do? What does this dummy do? He ignores the law. He gets up and he picks up his mat. Well, that was considered labor and work. And he should have known better. You see, these... Uh, self-righteous policemen they're on the ball they're doing their job uh, they see him walking but th that's not what's important it's the law that's important because in their minds that doesn't make sense because God wouldn't do that God wouldn't tell you to obey the Sabbath and and 
heal you and tell you to pick up your mat. Now, there's no verse about picking up mats, uh, but these spiritual leaders, uh, they added stuff like that because they want to make sure that you couldn't do anything that would in any way get you in trouble with God because if you get in trouble with God, who knows what could happen to you. They were looking out for the public's uh, best interest. And so they questioned him. Uh, They said, how could you do something like this? And who told you to do it? Well, the man said to him, I I don't know. Um, I got, he told me I was healed. He told me to get up and pick up my mat. And so when, when someone heals you, you do what they tell you to do. Now we read this, verse 14. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Okay, wait a minute. Well, what's that all about? You just healed this guy. And now you're going to call him a sinner? What's going on? Maybe there's more to the story than we know. In fact, the truth is, when God doesn't make sense to us, It's often because there's more to the story than we know. Let's go back and look at this guy for a minute. 38 years there. Now, he might be an old man, but and all of his family might have died off, but he wasn't an old man for 38 years. He got abandoned there. For some reason, there were those in his life who wanted nothing to do with him anymore. I've met people like that. I've met people either because of alcohol or drugs or just going around committing adultery that they've burned every bridge. And it's gotten to the point where people have just said, I want nothing to do with them. I was in the store the other day and a a man came up to me and said, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you, but do you have $5 I can have? Um, you know, my wife dropped off my baby and um, I wasn't expecting it. And, you know, so I could really use this money and, and you know, I'll pay you right back. And this story didn't mesh. First of all, he wasn't going to pay me back. He didn't know who I was. And as he kind of put, weaved this story together, he kept stumbling over it. And I gave him the $5. Um, but... Uh, Yeah, I I could see in that there's something wrong with this guy. This guy, this is part of his deal. Going around asking people for money. Um, Yeah, with a good cover story. Uh, My point is, this man who's at the pool for 38 years, it's very possible he didn't rush to get healed. It's very possible that he went there every day because that's how he made his livelihood. That people would come to the temple and 
in order to fulfill spiritual requirements that they believed were pleasing to God, they would pay alms to him. And so every day, all he had to do was kind of lay around the pool and wait and ask people for money as they walked by and maybe looked out uh, further on the other side of the temple and seeing uh, the young women you know, with cleaning their clothes and different things going on. And it could have been a great life for him. I know that sounds crazy, but we all know that sometimes there are people who settle for much less because their interpretation of reality is a weak interpretation. It's interpretation where they believe that God won't show up, that God doesn't love them. An interpretation of reality where they believe Uh, Life is about uh, taking. It's about getting over on others before they get over on you. It's about coming to the end of the day and feeling good about what you've been able uh, to take. Uh, Something was up with this guy. Because when Jesus revisits him, uh, he says to him, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Jesus understood this guy's deal. That's why when Jesus went to him and said, do you want to get well? And the first thing this man does, he doesn't say, yes, I do. First thing he does is he starts his road excuses that he's made up. Oh yeah, I do, but you know, I can't get to that uh, water and I got nobody here to help me. So yeah, that's why I've been here for 38 years. Now, you might think, uh, Pastor Fred, you're really making some leaps. That's possible. But I noticed some things here. I noticed that when Jesus told him to get up, he got up. But he never thanked Jesus for what he had done. Uh, When he went to the religious leaders, he never gave any great testimony like the woman at the well who said, this man's incredible. He knew everything about me, told me everything I ever did. And she was grateful and thankful. In fact, look what we're told. After Jesus says to him, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. We're told in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Why would he do that? He wasn't going to them and say, oh, I found out who he was. And No, he was going to him. I suspect, because he was not happy with what Jesus had to say. I even suspect he was not happy with the fact that his livelihood was gone. So he actually ran back to the leaders and say, remember how I told you I didn't know who he was? Let me give you his name now. It was Jesus. Because he knew they were out for him. He knew that they wanted him and were going to punish him. And let's face it. If somebody had healed you and you were grateful. And then all of a sudden that person's enemies come and start questioning you. And you get the vibe that they're looking to hurt this dear man who just saved me. Would you run back to them and give up his name? I don't think so. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. 
<laughs> yeah, because in their mind, this isn't what God does. The God uh, of our interpretation, he's just like us. He wouldn't put up with this. He'd want you out of the picture. And so they begin to persecute him. Verse 17, we read, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Now it's interesting that he says that. He says my father is at work to this very day. You know it's interesting when we go back to Genesis and creation. At the seventh day God rested from his work. But after Adam and Eve sinned. God hasn't rested since. Because of our sinfulness, not only did we bring sorrow and suffering to ourselves, but we've brought back to labor the God who loved us and who wanted perfect peace for us. The God who has loved us so much that he won't rest until we're saved. He won't rest until we can finally, once and for all, rest in him. Jesus says that he is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Jesus is making a connection that he and the father are one and that they're equal. For this reason they tried to they tried all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath but because but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. I love that statement. Let's just go back and look at that for a second. Um, on the slide before this. Um, for this reason. They tried all the more to kill him. What a ridiculous statement. Uh, but in their mind it's like. You know you make us mad and we want to kill you. But now we really want to kill you. I mean <laughs> it's craziness. And it's also craziness to think. That God is someone you can kill. But see, Jesus didn't make sense to them. They didn't see the love, the love and the compassion and the power of God in him. It's interesting. I'd like to read to you a wonderful um, quote um, that I came across. Referring to the Trinity and referring to Jesus as God and man and what he was doing when he was upon this earth as both man and God. While I as God am never anything less than God so I as man am never anything less than man. He was here to make all that he was as man available to all that the father was as God. So that all that the father was as God. Might be made available to all that he was as man. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus was here as man. To make everything that he was as God the father. Available to us as man. He became fully us but he was still fully God 
coming to make himself available to us. Um, okay. So let's get back to the crux of what we're talking about. How do you make sense of God when he doesn't make sense? Let me give you a very simple principle that I draw from this passage. When God does not make sense, trust him and he will. When God does not make sense, trust him and he will. Now I know you're thinking, oh come on, that's, what does that mean? There are more times than not God is not going to make sense to you. And you know why that is? Because you're not God. And let's face it, most of the time we don't make sense to ourselves. But here's the deal. When God doesn't make sense, I don't cut him out of the picture. When God doesn't make sense, I don't say to myself, you know, he must have missed this. Or he's busy with somebody else. Or maybe he's just trying to punish me. Because that's a weak interpretation of reality. That's a weak interpretation of God. Because here's the deal. He sees what we don't. We read this story and we can just look and say, what kind of God will leave a man 38 years at that pool? But we don't know the backdrop, do we? We don't know everything that he knows. We don't see everything that he sees. He knows what we can't know. He knows this man's situation. He knows what he wants. And he knows even if what he has to give this man isn't what he really wants. He can give it to him and still use it for his purposes. To make his name and his glory known. You see he sees what we don't. And he knows what we can't. And thirdly, the truth is, he cares more than we do. We care about the moment. We care about what's going on in our family's lives this moment. What's going on at our job this moment. What's going on in our finances this moment. Unfortunately, because we are so frail and feeble, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about all the moments ahead. We don't spend the time thinking about how God is using all of this to manifest his love and his care. I don't understand COVID, but I'll tell you something right now. Why I don't believe that God caused COVID to wreak havoc on us. God allowed COVID to wreak havoc on us. Why? I don't know. But I know this, our God is not a God of scraps. There's a reason for it. It's all part of his sovereign plan. 
And I promise you this, it's not cruel, it's not unkind. We just don't see all the details and the facts behind it. He cares more than we do. He cares about the things that matter more than we do. He can do what we can never do. He can make it all come together for his glory. The next time you think doesn't make sense. The next time someone comes to you and tries to stir up the waters of your faith in a negative way by questioning you on why God would allow this. It's okay to look at them and say, I don't know. But I trust him. I trust when it's all over, it'll all make sense. I trust when the smoke clears, God will still be good and I'll still be grateful. Even though right now, it doesn't make sense to me because I'm not God. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you don't make sense to us because we know there is very little time we make sense at all. How wonderful you are that you put up with us. In the midst of all of our frailness, our feebleness, our forgetfulness, in the midst of Lord God of our sinfulness. You still love us. You still interact with us. You still push us and prod us. And lead us in the right direction. Fully accepting and loving who we are. All the while you transform us. We thank you for such a powerful love. Father, help us not to second guess you. Let us not be so foolish. No matter how strange, no matter how painful, no matter how disturbing life might seem, let us run to you and find calm and peace in sense, in knowing that when we trust you, everything will come together. And at the end of the day, it's, it's only you and your will that matters. We thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you for knowing that you are always at work even till this day. Help us, Lord God, to rest in that Grant us the privilege to participate in it. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.